This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you go into the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15. S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome, guys, to episode 259 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm very excited to bring to you Will Roish. Now, Will is a California high school teacher, and he also started a podcast called Cylinder Radio, to identify areas in education that he wanted to address and bring on guests with solutions to those problems. So a great podcast, a great parallel uh, project to this one, uh, and a great conversation. So we discuss a host of topics from PE, school food, sex ed, mental health, and many, many other areas. Before we get to the episode, as I always say, I urge you please to take a moment to go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on and subscribe and leave a rating. The more five-star ratings we get, the more visible we become, the higher up the invisible charts <laughs> that we become, and therefore, most importantly, makes us easier to find for the people who are looking for a project like this. And then on top of that, take your social media, take any outlet that you have and share these incredible episodes. This one, for example, is going to address many of the frustrations that we have in education. Obviously, it's going to be very pertinent to many, many people on this planet. So with that being said, I introduce to you Will Roish. Enjoy. Will, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, man. This is this is very cool to be, you know, <laughs> like on this end, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, this was interesting. I know we, we connected through us both having a podcast. You're in the educational space. I'm obviously in the first responder space. So I think this is going to be a great conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm new to it. You know, I've been doing it less than a year and I saw what you were doing. I was like, oh, that's something to aim for. So that's why I reached out. Brilliant. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say aim for, but we're doing side by side. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the very first thing, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? 
Uh, I'm in Los Angeles, California now. I was born and raised in Pennsylvania. Moved out here after I graduated from college and have been teaching out here full time ever since. So this is 2006. Uh, so I've been teaching for about 13 years. All different types of schools, though. All high school, but all different types of schools from uh, private school to public school, charter, big, small, all of that. High school teacher, yeah. Brilliant. We are going to definitely explore that. But going back to, to Pennsylvania, so tell me, what did your mom and dad do and what was your family dynamic? Uh, so it's very, like, classic middle America type of living. I mean, we, my dad was... Uh, and human resources for the steel plant that was there. I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, so it's Bethlehem Steel. Uh, my mom was a social worker, worked in foster care. We had, you know, two-story house, three bedrooms, white picket fence. We had a collie, like like Lassie. Like it was very just America. We weren't rich, we weren't poor. It was it was a very stable life. I walked to school, and it was you know not a lot of crime and all that kind of stuff. It was a very classic American upbringing, which was great, very stable. Now, you mentioned your mom was a social worker. How much of who she was and maybe what she brought home do you attribute to some of your philosophies teaching now? Yeah, that's uh, I was kind of groomed from an early age to get into some sort of service. My sister is a nurse. We were kind of urged to give back. You know, my, my family, they're not entrepreneurs. My dad worked nine to five and he didn't work overtime. Like he's like when the time when the, the, the bell goes off, essentially, I go home and I spend time with the family. So that was the way I was kind of nudged into this is the way to best way to be. So serve your community uh, and, you know, don't work too long hours and be there physically for your family and things like that. Right now, we're going to talk about education. I can't wait to. And we're going to talk about the environment. Of, of our school systems and how we're set up to succeed, fail, whatever the, the case may be. But obviously that same um, vicious circle can exist at home as well. So you personally, were you given a good support system at home to thrive in school? Um, I, I didn't thrive in school. I, uh, I didn't like school. I, I remember there was a, an orientation a couple of years ago and they said, write down the five most influential uh, teachers you've had in high school. And I couldn't even name five teachers, let alone five influential ones. I just wasn't there. I got B's. I think I graduated like a 3.0. Like my parents, they were, they were very laissez-faire. They were more like, you know, as long as there's no, you know, alarms going off or anything, you're kind of just doing your thing. We trust you. So I wasn't the same way I was, I was kind of groomed to, to, um, into like some sort of social work or, or, or giving back. I wasn't, nudge to push myself a whole lot so it was like do your best but that's about where it stood and i was like yeah i did my best i was i don't know if that if that makes sense i wasn't but school wasn't a, a real focus for me it was much more social yeah but do you think so the overall experience so putting letter grades and gpa gpas aside for a moment mm -hmm. as an experience do you think it was a good experience for you growing up yeah well just just school so taking the educational oh, uh, no, calibration I, 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 Okay. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't, school wasn't, it didn't serve its, its intended purpose. I think I got some good friends out of it and stuff like that, but no, it wasn't, it was, it was tough. You know, it was tough. I think we forget how tough school is, especially like middle school, high school for a lot of us. We look back as adults and think about a lot of the good times and stuff, but it's hard, you know, socially, it, even that's hard. And I wasn't, I wasn't really um, pushed my limits academically, but it wasn't, it just wasn't a, a real focus. I wasn't, I wasn't there for, 
for I think what they were intending me to be there for. Right. Now, what about athletics? Were you a sportsman? Well, that's so that's another thing. I did zero extracurricular activities. I wasn't in any clubs. I wasn't didn't play a single sport. None of that stuff. And, you know, my parents would ask or, you know, hey, what do you think about trying this sport? It's like, no, like, okay. I did karate when I was a kid from the time I was like in second grade until maybe 10th grade. But it was kind of nonsense, traditional karate. I, I do martial arts now. Um, that It's a little bit different. But uh, but no, I didn't do anything. I wasn't involved in anything in school. All right. So then going through that system, what were your career aspirations as a young man? It was we had to, to pick a career like for, you know, whatever uh, project in probably ninth grade. And I chose a uh, police officer. So I didn't really have any other plans. So when I graduated from high school, I went to college. I went to a small state school in Pennsylvania called Bloomsburg. And my major was criminal justice. So that was the intention was to, to become a cop. I didn't think, uh, think it through a whole lot. Like I didn't think much through a whole lot back then. But I was thinking cop. Right. So carry on that journey for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, first day of my criminal justice class, uh, a guy walked in and he was the the like a, like almost like a caricature of a police officer and he was talking about how this job how we're getting into a job where there's a lot of power and you can make or break people's lives and you know it lies in your hands and it just felt really gross to me and it turned me off to to the the whole career and I didn't go back I went to one class left went down to my counselor's office and changed my major to education uh, I just, it, it, it really, I'm sure if I would have had a different teacher, <clears throat> I could have been steered in another direction, but I was just like, I don't want to be a part, any, any part of this. Okay. So when, when he was talking about it, it wasn't like a cautionary tale, like be careful of this power. It was almost more like a bragging type style. It was, yeah. It was like the worst, uh, and you probably get a lot of this or, or, you know, your guests do. It's like the worst kind of stereotypes and cliches about police officers it was like all of that rolled into this, this one guy. And it was it was it was so unfortunate because I could, I was looking around the class and I was like, cause I was kind of furrowing my brows like, is this is this for real? And there were other guys in the room who were like, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm going for this. And I was like, oh, man, what is going on? Where am I? And again, this is this was my perception as a 19 year old kid. I don't know how much of this I've kind of built up to be bigger than it was, but that's definitely the impression that I got. Yeah, well, it's interesting because when I went to Fire Academy, I had some amazing mentors, but there were also men, it was actually an all-male cadre when I went to school, um, that really painted a picture of how heroic they were. <laughs> and then you get out and you get a few years on and then you happen to go back into a department where they work and you're like, ah, now I see you're actually the one that everyone doesn't want on the fire ground. That's why you're teaching. So there are some amazing people teaching, leading from the front, being mentors, pouring their passion into the career. But the academy environment also attracts the kind of people that you really don't want there as well, that seem competent when you don't know anything else as a brand new cadet. But then you get into your career and you're like, ah, you know what, that guy's actually a bit of a tool. Oh, that's interesting. That would that would align with what I what I felt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. sounds like it. <laughs> I, yeah, I see that in education too. I mean, it's that's like like a classic thing. Those who can't do teach, right? Yeah, and I think I mean I think the the best ones you know do both. I think that that's a, 
that's a shame. I think the best coaches, there are some coaches that have never been champions, but were still great at whatever they do. I think it's impossible to really teach effectively and have not traveled that road yourself. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that goes for a lot. of. I'm, I'm in the martial arts world a little bit. And I think that, you know, if you're a, like a, a boxing coach and you've never stepped foot in the ring, there's maybe an element of your your coaching is missing because you might not have experienced that the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I look, yeah. I look good hitting the pads. Put me in a ring. I fall apart. <laughs> right. I'll tell you. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so then, so, so how did you find teaching after not having uh, an incredibly enthusiastic experience yourself? Uh, so <clears throat> then I got into the education major and it started to, to kind of get a better pixelation of what that was like. And I liked it more and more the more classes I took. And I didn't. I wasn't a, a very self-reflective person for for a much of my younger life, and I I just kind of went through the motions. And then just to fast forward, so I can bring it back to explain this, I've been asked because I've had moments where I've been recognized as a teacher, and um, people have been very complimentary throughout my career, and uh, they've often asked and students ask, you know, how did you find this? Because you like what you do and you're good at it, you know, how did you find this? And I didn't have a good answer until about a year ago, maybe less than, and I, and I comes back to this whole process. I, <clears throat> I didn't understand why school sucks so much. <clears throat> and that's what it is. Sorry, I have something in my throat. The, uh, like we all enjoy being capable. We enjoy being smart. We enjoy being, um, able to help. We enjoy being able to, you know, be, um, <clears throat> an active member in society to some degree. And we don't like being, dumb or anything like that. So school is supposed to be the process from for which you become a capable human being. And yet most people, the vast majority of, of people don't like school or at least the classes and stuff. And I was like, this is a weird mismatch here. We like learning, but we don't like learning in school. Like we all like learning. We all go on YouTube and look up stuff that we're curious about or whatever it is. But there's a real disconnect there. And I think that that was guiding me from the first time I started taking these education classes was Oh, this is, I get what they're trying to do here, but this could be done better is what I was thinking. And, you know, school could be done better than it is. This, this lesson could be done better than it is. And maybe because I didn't, wasn't a, a school focused person. I wasn't an academic person. I don't think of myself necessarily as an intellectual. I had a different point of view. I had a different perspective. And maybe I approached it a little bit more like a high school student who was like, oh, I got to get through this next hour. I don't want to be here because that's the way I was. And I don't think a lot of teachers were. Yeah, no, I can relate completely. I was a straight C student in high school in England. And when I, you know, years later, when I finally got into the fire service, I was a straight A student. And it was it was work ethic. That's all it was. But it's impossible to get someone, well, nearly impossible to get someone to truly work hard when they're not driven about what they're studying. And obviously, we can't choose every single thing. We had to do hazmat and fire sprinklers, both piss boring to me as well. But, you know, you're driven overall to to get that piece of paper at the end. And that's what I kind of retroactively look back at my at my education is if they had made some of these subjects pertinent to the desires and passions of the people in the room I think it would have driven them to get over some of the humps that, you know, some of the areas that maybe weren't that interesting. Because, for example, say you wanted to be a police officer. Well, if you were explained how your math and your English is going to tie into that job, 
you'd probably be more likely to put your head down. But if it's just because, oh, you need to pass your SATs, your GCSEs, whatever nation you're in, and that's it, that's all you're told, then of course there's going to be you know, resistance to any of the kids that aren't academically driven. There's so much over here, James. Yeah, yes, I agree with everything you're saying. Like if you're in the fire academy and they say, well, here's how to tell if there's, I don't know anything much about this, like other than like the movie back. So you know, <laughs> if there's smoke coming out the doorway this way, be careful because this could blow up in your face. You're going to pay attention to that because it could save your life. You're not going to just zone out. And I think what happens, I think of the job of teachers largely, especially in high school, as translators. We take these abstract ideas. It could be math, sciences, humanities, whatever. And we translate them to make sense for their lives. Here's why this is good for you to know, because it is good for you to know. There's a reason why it's been taught for generations. It's just our job to explain to you not just what it is, but why this knowledge is, you know, we're taking an hour out of your day to teach you this. It's important and it will help you. And that's that's really at the core of what I what I believe school should be and what teaching should be. And kids should always and this might annoy colleagues of mine, but raise their hand and say, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Whatever. Why are we learning this? How is knowing this going to help me in my life? And if the teacher doesn't have a good answer, or the best answer they have is so you can get into college. Your job is going to be unnecessarily difficult from my experience. Yeah. Yeah, and I found that same same thing with higher education. I want to explore that later in this interview, but just to touch on it for a moment, all these prerequisites that they front load these degree programs now. I went through it myself. I graduated from UF with exercise physiology, and I had to do humanities and all these, you know, these out of left field subjects. And my my wife is now going towards uh, medical school, optometry, and the high level physics and math she needs to get into this program where ultimately she's going to be using technology and asking people which lens is better, which one is clearer, looking at their retina, you know, those, when you take a step back, it's, it's, it's bullshit, you know? So again, when, when there's these, these hurdles that we put in front of people to get to the actual pertinent information for the career they're pursuing, I think that creates a huge barrier for learning as well. Yeah. Um, I, I know. I, I actually um, was fortunate enough to have a quick conversation with Brett Weinstein um, uh, about a year ago on his Patreon. And we were talking about, uh, you know, what what should be a required class? And and that's a, a re- I think that's a really important conversation to have. You know, oftentimes in society, we just push the status quo without questioning it. Um, I broke this down for some students. I might have put it on my social media. I'm not sure. But, you know, looking at math. These advanced math classes, essentially what that is, is a problem solving class. And, you know, these variables could be anything. They could be degrees. They could be weights and measures, whatever it is. But understanding how do you solve a problem using a formula that could be applied on this silly nonsense math problem or my air conditioning broke. How do we fix it? You know, science might be the the class that we search for what is true and English class or language arts might be how to be a good communicator and history might be learning from past successes and failures or something like that. But it is important to zoom out and really, you know, question why are we learning this and could this, could you get a better, if your goal is to really teach problem solving, could we do it better than this, whatever, trigonometry class for someone who wants to be, you know, maybe just wants to be, you know, a nurse or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the high school level does a great job 
for nursing. I mean, you know, so many of those areas because we use we use math for hydraulics when we pump, you know, the fire engine. We use math for um, medication doses and drip rates. I mean, there's a huge amount of math, but it never gets more complex than high school level. So that's my thing is you're adding all these other ones. The reality is that form of mathematical mental math that you apply these different elements to I think you do a great job up in the high school level of preparing people. So then to stack more and more and more on, now you're really in some avenues through my, you know, my personal lens, you're almost setting people up to then teach in college as opposed to really give them skills to apply into the real world. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's an element that uh, it's like an obstacle course. Like, how would you do in this really tough, you know, mental obstacle course? Let's see. Oh, you get an A in this advanced math. And that just that shows that you're, you know, whatever it be in a physical obstacle course, physically capable. So this means you're mentally capable. But it just I, there could be a better way, perhaps. <clears throat> yeah. All right. Well, then let's let's go all the way chronologically back. So what I would love to do, um, if you're able to, is I've heard people on i think it was some tim ferris podcast maybe joe rogan's as well some people mention about the kind of model that we use here in the u.s really can relate back to the industrial revolution and changing the way that we are taught so that we do fit well in some of these you know factory settings and industrial settings firstly is that true and secondly whether it's true or not if you could walk us chronologically to how we found the system that we use at the moment yeah, so um, it is true to a degree. There is more variation now uh, than there has been um, with charter schools and different kinds of innovation. Technology has been a change. But yeah, I mean, it started, you know, industrial revolution model of essentially getting people to start at a certain time, the bells, that kind of thing. Um, learning the the all these subjects because it's the, the, the basics that you need. I think that there's an element of that that's true and it's antiquated. You know, why do we have people grouped this way, um, you know, according to their birthday? There's some developmental stuff on that, but there's, you know, some some schools track, some schools don't. You know, why do we have the there's a lot of schools that still have the rows, you know, the desks. So there's whatever, you know, eight per row and then you know, four, four rows or whatever it is. And they just sit there and then there's someone up in front. And instead of a blackboard, they might have whiteboards nowadays. But, uh, you know, instead of wheeling a, a, a TV out on a cart, it's like up on the wall, like little things like that. But for the most part, schools look pretty similar to the way that they were. As far as like how this all started, you know, Horace Mann and, and uh, the public uh, public schooling and stuff like that. I'm not uh, even though I'm a history teacher, I don't I'm not as familiar with uh, the details of the history of, of American education, probably as I, I should be. But uh, but I do think that that there is room to to grow and, and technology is the way to do that. Technology is going to be the way to solve a lot of the the problems or the, the shortcomings of the educational system. So at that time when there was an industrial boom, they wanted they wanted structure in the day and they wanted in, in a way, and I don't mean this in some like they were trying to create some master race, but they wanted a compliance in a way so that when we went to the the workforce that we were kind of good worker bees. Well, and, and there still is because the number of students 
that are medicated, you know, or diagnosed with ADHD and medicated with some form of, you know, anti, you know, ADHD medication to basically calm them down. It's growing and it's growing. I've been teaching, like I said, for 13 years and I see it growing every single year. So, you know, more and more, let's, let's, these kids that are being disruptive, let's, you know, medicate them so they're not being disruptive. And that's, I mean, they're, they're puppies. You know, I think I heard Joe Rogan talk about this. Like, you know, essentially a 15-year-old is a puppy. It's a, and, and telling them to just sit down and listen to someone talk. And it comes back to what we, what we just recently discussed, which is if this isn't interesting to them, to a 15-year-old boy or girl, like, and they don't connect it to their lives, it's really hard. It's hard for us as adults to pay attention to things that we don't think will relate to us. And we don't have the, all the crazy, you know, puberty hormone running through us and everything like that, and that crazy metabolism with energy. So it's really difficult, but we kind of like break them, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, like you sit down, you be quiet. And there's elements of that that are good because you do have to have structure. You know, I have two small kids and we have to, you know, when we tell them to sit down, then we expect them to sit down. So there are elements of that that are obviously good. But I, as far as how to impart information and get them to figure things out about the world, I think this it should maybe be a little bit less about compliance and more about, you know, actively, you know, engaged in the process. Yeah. Yeah. I, I look at myself again, as we're talking now, I've got a wall of books in front of me, a whole shelf of books behind me. When I wake up, I'm, you know, watching documentaries. I mean, you name it because, and same with you, you found your, your passion for learning. And, and your reason to, to learn this information. And I think that that's what I think was lacking in my education as well, was get on the bus, go to school, sit there for hours. I mean, I used to dread math, especially on the block days where it was two hours. Um, you know, cause there was no rhyme or reason to. I grew up on a farm. It didn't even, you know, make a lot of sense. Doesn't mean it wasn't right. Like I said, it ended up being great for the things I did when I was later in life. But f again, allowing that, um, that mental breadth for them to tie in whatever their true passions are to the classes that they're taking seems to be an area that certainly in my upbringing in England was missing. Um, and you know, my, 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 I'm very lucky. My little boy goes to a great school despite their, their environment financially that they're raised in, um, you know, the school system. He's got an amazing school and I see that. I mean, some great teachers really start to pull in that imagination and that wonder for the kids, but uh, that sit down, shut up and learn mentality that I was raised mm -hmm. in definitely was detrimental to me. Yeah. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't answer their important questions. The, the why questions of why we're learning this, you know, so kids are going through this process, then they want to get into a good college. Well, why? Well, so they can, they don't really know the whys. So then it becomes, let's just make money, you know, or I want to become famous. Why? I want money. Why? Like, what's the what? What is your why for why you want this? And they don't really know because it's been essentially an obstacle course the whole way. So they know how to run through these hoops, but they don't really know the, what they're running towards. Because I think that that's that's not given as much attention and focus as as it probably should. And again, this is generalizations. There's a lot of brilliant, brilliant teachers out there. Yeah, yeah, and and, and that's what I do with the podcast too. But I think it's our job to point out areas that could do better because it's pointless just talking about the ones that do it well i bring in the guests of the people that are doing well you know to educate us all on how a different country state whatever it is is doing it better but if you know if you just fluff around everything's fine then you never you never really address the real issues 
So what about standardized testing? I'm in Florida here now. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, my little boy, he's very young for a school year. He's academically improved, but always struggled in that school year. So he's not excelled at his, you know, biological age. Um, doing well now, but, um, yeah, the, the, you hear it over and over again in the teachers in this, this state that we live in that they're kind of forced to, to teach these kids to pass a test. So what's your view of that way of testing and, and what are some solutions that you may have come across in your own journey? Okay. Um, yeah. So this is a, this is a huge thing in education and where it stems from by, you know, my estimation is it's very hard to quantify good teaching. You know, I mean, we're in this for the long game. I'm in this not to be told, hey, Mr. Roosh, you're my favorite teacher. You're great. That's nice. It is nice. But, you know, when a, a kid who graduated in you know 2008 or something like that that I had comes back or reaches out to me and says, I'm living a really awesome life and I'm uh, fulfilled and all this kind of stuff. And you helped me get here with something. You know, I still remember this lesson and it changed me or something like that. That's that's the goal. That's what I think most teachers are looking for, you know, not to be popular among to a 17 year old, but to be, you know, a part of the development of this future, you know, adult who, who seems to be in a good place. So how do you how do you quantify that? How do you know, most jobs are very are very measurable and they're very scalable. So it's it's tough to do. But you no, know, actually, if you're a firefighter and you're a great firefighter, how do you quantify that? It's not it's not very easy, right? Like, is it just the person who can run up the most stairs with hoses? Like, well, not really. It, there's a lot to it, and it's sometimes not something very measurable. But we are in a society, and we are you know a, a society that likes to, to keep score. And how do we do that? Well, we have to see. Who learns the most? So let's give them tests because that's how the kids learn. And then it becomes, yeah, let's just teach the test. And I have been at public charter schools that their funding was reliant on how their test scores were. So I got out of there because I was tired of just teaching the test. I could kid would ask a question. Hey, can we learn about this or what about this? And I go, oh, can't cover it because it's not on the standards and we don't have time. Like that's ridiculous. So I think that's where the testing comes from. Uh, just the idea of like, how do we quantify? How do we know if people are doing good or bad or what it is? So they needed some sort of measurement, but it's, I think it's, it's failing a lot of kids and it's, the kids who I think it's failing the most are the, probably the most creative, the most untapped, the kids who don't, they, they, they're, they're brilliant in a way that just isn't quantifiable. So then they think that they're dumb and they would put them off to the side where they might be really like the ones who are going to solve major societal problems or, or make a, a big impact. And we lose those kids. We get the kids who are great at just checking boxes, you know, and that's that's not that's not necessarily who we want. That's that's not going to build a lot of leaders. That's going to build a lot of followers. Yeah. And that's something I've read, you know, kind of looked at recently is how valuable are grades Period. And and the reason I say this is look at the GPA now. You know, it used to be what the 4.0 was perfect. Now, what is it? Five, you know, because yeah, I've done needlework yeah. and sheep raising and, you know, whatever else, you know. So, and, and I, I see this with the, the awards in my son's school. Like he, he made AB honor roll. Amazing. The journey he's been at, that was absolutely incredible. But then, you know, there's always other kids, you know, getting their special awards for, for the other things they've done. But how many kids, who have fought from an F to a D that have been on an incredible journey that, you know, despite whatever is going on at home, they've got to that point and they're basically never going to be recognized because they're not hitting these magic numbers or letters, you know, in 
in this system, you know, and I think that's like you're saying, that's letting a lot of people kind of slip between the the cracks, as it were, because they may be, you know, the future innovators of the world, but they're not being recognized or encouraged or rewarded um, because their journey doesn't match this this kind of uh, mathematical equation that we've created. Yeah, I mean, like you can't. There's the. How do you quantify what is like the most important knowledge or skills or abilities? You know, I mean, where's the grit? Someone who doesn't have to study very hard but gets A's, you know, in high school, they're not learning the hardship that the kid who really struggles to get a B plus does. And we all, as adults, know that how you did in in high school or K through 12 doesn't determine how happy you are, fulfilled you are, how successful you are, really. Yeah, really smart people typically got good grades, but not always. You know, I've heard Eric Weinstein talk about how he's, you know, he struggled in K through 12 and he's one of the smartest people on the planet. So, you know, like, what about, there was a funny, um, are you familiar with The Onion, like the the, the satirical newspaper? Yes, I am. So I've, I've okay, shared they, some of the hilarious stories. <laughs> yeah, it's great. They had a, a, a YouTube video or a video for, for their channel, and it was how NASA plans on talking to the cute girl at the laundromat by like, you know, 2035. And there's this long drawn out plan about how they're going to open with a joke. And and it was so, it hit on something that I thought, that I see a lot. And, and I thought about um, for the differences in students is, you know, to one kid, just being able to walk up to someone and make a friend out of the blue is very easy. But, you know, doing math or, or getting the, the synopsis of, a, of, an, of an excerpt of a story is very, very hard. Which one's really going to help you more to find your success? Well, it really depends, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of different ways and you, it's hard to quantify your, you know, your ability to make friends easily, you know, but that's that's very valuable. And we know that's valuable, you know, communication skills. You might have trouble on the SATs, you know, verbal section, but can you explain yourself well to someone in person? Like that's, can you convince someone? Those are are very valuable skills. So a test is obviously just by the nature of of an exam is going to be limited. And human beings are, are, are so diverse that we're going to have to choose. All right, well, what are we going to focus on? It is limited. So what are we going to focus on? And on one thing and you lose a lot of others uh, a lot of other areas yeah absolutely well so one thing i love to do i've had prison and governor from um norway on i've had uh Zhao Gulao, a portuguese guy that that led the decriminalization of drugs on the show of oh, the wow. entire awesome. planet earth give me one country that you think does it well or better than us and what is it about their system that makes it better um, this is one that I, I would love to do to do homework on. This is this question because I don't I don't know I don't know if I have a good answer right off the bat because I I'm familiar with like some of the Scandinavian countries and the way they do it. You know, Finland gets thrown out all the time as like the way the way to do school. There's a lot more downtime and um, you know a lot more you know kind of like Montessorial you know the kids you know project based and kind of helping each other out and learning from each other and stuff and that sounds great, but and, you know, you're more like international and, and understand, you know, different perspectives based on on who you've talked to. But America is unique I and mean, we have a very unique, very heterogeneous population. So I don't know if the models 
for you know changing social structures apply to America. I think it's worth giving it a shot for sure. And I think we should look to others to see what they're doing and try it and see how we can adapt it. I'm open to that, of course. I just don't know if certain models will work the same here in America, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, there's a guy I'm trying to get on the show at the moment who is from Finland. He's, he's one of the guys that talks about their system. Um, and I know he's been over here a lot talking. So I'll let you know if I'm able to finally get him. We, we've... Some people I get communication with and then it drops off and then I have to kind of, you know, hunt them down again. <laughs> so I'm at that point in the moment. Yeah. But but yeah, because I, yeah. I want to know if, if you do it better and Finland gets thrown out all the time, then why? And if if it'll make us 30% better, then great. It may not be exact, you know, but I mean, the NHS, I came from England, an amazing system. It's starting to be bastardized now because they, they're following our system, which is a, a road to hell, in my opinion. But, you know, the, the concept that everyone in your country has health care is amazing the concept that it's not profit driven so the goal is prevention rather than encouraging illness sounds pretty bloody good to me you know but these some of these countries are doing it so well and it may not be apples to apples but at least a nectarine you know something right, somewhat right. close that we can use yeah like i wonder if like what the um like single parent household rate would be in their poor communities cuz i taught in communities where it was 70% or more so, you know, even if even a great teacher can only do so much, if it's not enforced at the home, you know, I mean, a lot of these kids, they didn't have food in the house. So the only food they got was the, the you know, nutrition snack and lunch. That's it. You know, uh, there, there was a student who was just being kind of a pain in the butt. So I was like, I'm going to call your parents. And he goes, good luck. So I called, never met his dad, mom in prison for murder, lived in a two bedroom with like, you know, nine of his cousins. And I just wanted to give the kid a hug. Like, I don't, I don't know what kind of system can, can combat that. And I don't, and I, and in Norway, I don't know, I would be more interested in, in areas maybe even within America there, you know, cause school is something that is more localized. So you look at what are the school, what are schools doing here in America with these really challenging populations? Where is it working and where isn't it? I mean, maybe Finland does have neighborhoods I'm not familiar with that are, you know, really stricken by drugs and poverty and things like that. But that's what I'd be interested in because those are the tough populations. You could open up a school in Santa Monica that has really creative, lots of autonomy and stuff like that. And I'm sure it would be successful for $45,000 a year. But I'm thinking, you know, what do we do for these communities that are just, that are just really, really terrible in a lot of ways? Yeah. And I I think that's that's just it. I mean, picking going back to Portugal, you know, they had a horrendous opioid epidemic there. One thing was the worst even in in Europe or the world. I forget. I got to ask him because I keep, you know, asking the same question to myself. But it was it was terrible. And in within 10 years, they had reversed it to the best in in Europe. It was amazing. And all they did was they said, you know what? Addicts aren't criminals. Addicts are patients. We're going to take all our money. We're going to attack the drug dealers. We're going to attract the drug smugglers. And anyone who's caught with a personal amount of whatever, we're going to funnel you into addiction programs and job creation and mental health, you know, and fix you. And is it going to get everyone? Of course not. But we're going to left with a lot smaller group of people. We have seen the war on drugs here in America. Look what's going on at our borders. It is horrendous. And is drugs at the core of a lot of this this horrendous violence that we see in our poorer areas? Absolutely. You see it in the schools. I see it on the streets. Every gangbanger I've buried hasn't been fighting over fruit and vegetables. No. You know what I mean? So Or alcohol or yeah. cigarettes. No, exactly. Right. Exactly. But they were. 
Bugsy Malone and those guys, it was alcohol because that was that was criminalized then. So how do we fix it? We we go back to control alt delete. How do we make an environment that gets our people to thrive instead of creating criminals? If our prisons are profit based and we have like the I think it was 1970 we had 350,000 prisons in the U.S. and now we have 2.4 million. So in 40 years, is, does that mean that our prison system's working? And I have a lot of people that are in the prisons and I want to make it safer for them and, and the police officers and everyone else. Our system is broken and we are creating more and more criminals, which is making it more dangerous for our kids in the school, more dangerous for the, the kids living in those neighborhoods. And imagine all those men and women, what they could be doing for this country if they weren't living in poverty and trying to kill each other. You know, so I don't think we fix school shootings with guns and I don't think we can force parents to start caring about their kids we have to look at our nation and how we take care of people you know in every sense and and create an environment for people to thrive and actually want to stay in their community again yeah I I use I read um Johan Hari's book Chasing the Scream like a couple years ago and it completely changed my mind on on drugs because all the stuff that you said I promote this stuff to my class and when I say something along the lines of, I think, you know, heroin should be, you know, legalized and regulated, it that's really like controversial. And I'm like, well, just look into it. Like, like let's, you know, what was it? 70,000 opioid overdoses last year or something like that. Heroin overdoses. I mean, it's um, with fentanyl and all that stuff. It's really, really bad. It's destroying communities to say, well, if we legalize drugs, it would be, you know, chaos. Like what Johan Hari says is chaos now. I mean, Wow, this is this is destroying people's lives. I had to bust kids for having, you know, a nickel bag of pot on them and then they got suspended or expelled like and it sucks. Like what what are we doing? You know, and it, and but we have to think outside the box, but it's an education thing. Like you had this conversation, you're willing to read these books and stuff like that as am I, but a lot of people aren't and they just go, well, legalizing drugs that sounds crazy. And then they move on instead of looking at the nuance and the the reality of what it is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And look, look what's happening with marijuana now. I always refer to, you know, when we were young, Cops, the TV show, you may think of all the chases and the, 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 the beatdowns that these, these guys got for prostitution or a bag of weed, which now the bag of weed is legal in many states around the country and prostitution is starting to become legal, which I think if you're going to be using that profession to make money then we should create an environment where those women don't get murdered because i've seen that myself too and the johns i've seen that as well getting murdered in a you know a prostitution kind of sting if you like um you know the <laughs> like you said it's already an absolute nightmare and these are areas that we can fix but the quote-unquote war on drugs which if you read johan's book you see where that stemmed from was basically racism um, yeah, Harry it, Anslinger. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's it's a complete farce. I mean, all we've done is make our country worse with that. And if we can have the humility to go, oh, even though we're the greatest country in the world, there's possibility that some other countries are doing some elements better than us. A truly great country would swallow their pride and go, hey, Portugal, tell us more about what you did. Hey, Norway. Hey, Finland. Because we want to share information. Here's something we do really well. We'd love to give to you. Can you teach us about what you did with drug policy? If it's working in another country, again, doesn't have to be apples for apples. But this war on drugs has done nothing but fill our prison and fill body bags in this country. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, and, and when you say like, you know, America is great. It's a great country. We know this just by, you know, how many people want to come here and, and, and all the freedoms that we have and things. But it could be better. And I think that there's a difference. We need to recognize the difference between something that is terrible and something that could be better. And those are not the same thing. And why not improve? And, you know, it's going to come through education, which is why I love the position I'm in, because I can teach a civics class or a government class and I can dive into here's the Constitution. Let's have a discussion. Why is prostitution illegal? Why are drugs legal? Now, we can go back to the, you know, the court cases and stuff like that. And, and but really at the core of it, where in the Constitution is this constitutional? And it, and it's a struggle. And the kids start to think like they just assume, well, drugs are bad because it's bad for you. There's a lot of things that are bad for you that are not. So really, what is it? And that's the fun of my job is to kind of shake up their their beliefs that they've had for 15 or more years, like so solidified and then put them on shaky ground. Because I'm just looking to be on shaky ground. I don't I don't I'm not trying to, to know everything or say that I, I have everything figured out. I like the the uncertainty. I like not knowing because that keeps me curious. And I try to promote that to the students then. Yeah. You know, and you just you just made me think of something as well. We will fight tooth and nail to convince people guns don't kill people, people kill people, but then we'll apply that to drugs and be like, oh no, drugs kill people. I was like, well, wait a second. That's also a thing that if you leave it on the shelf and don't touch it, it's not gonna do anything. Mental health or mental ill health kills people. And drugs and alcohol and porn and violence fill that gap that people have. And some people, you know, will use porn or whatever it is. And some people will reach for an illegal or an illegal substitute. You can go in a liquor store and buy whatever you want and you're not going to get arrested. You can go tell your doctor that you got back pain and get your opiates. You're not going to get arrested. You know, so just because those certain things we've called illegal, some of which now are realized are incredibly powerful plant medicine, like marijuana, um, you know, that's just because you're choosing which of these poisons and potions that you want to personally use and not stigmatize. But the reality is these are all guns, drugs, whatever you want to do. They're filling a void for a mental ill health. And that's the thing that no one is talking about that Johan does so well in his book is don't look at the tool the gun, the drug, whatever. Look at the person. Look at society. And what are we doing to create a need to reach for an escape? It seems like it's almost um, like they're just they're looking for a quick fix. Like people are trying to solve problems left and right. And teachers kind of fall into this too. Like because a lot of teachers, just the psychological temperament is just very, you know, caring and and um, very empathetic. And so we want to solve problems. But how do you solve a problem that you don't really understand? My school had a big assembly about um, about guns, especially after this last shooting, which is about 10 minutes from my house uh, in Saugus. The um, but we were talking and everyone had really strong opinions and teachers and students. And I'm, I'm in a, a pretty progressive area of Los Angeles, and I'm willing to bet that I've shot more guns than just about everyone in that building combined. <laughs> like. And I was uncertain. I don't know what to do about these shootings or about gun laws. I don't know, but I know a lot more than they do. And there's, they, they just have no idea. I just, I would ask a basic question. Do you know what a semi-automatic gun is? And they say, yeah, it's a machine gun 
that, you know, like an, like, like an M60 or something like that. And it's like, and so there's just, there's no recognition about what the problem is. And I think that goes for the drug issue. It goes for, you know, pornography, it goes for mental health. It goes for a lot of this stuff is we're trying to rush the, the, the um, solution without really understanding the problem. Yeah. And again, we're looking at the tools. We're looking at the things people are using. Why did that young man decide to walk into that school indiscriminately shoot at students and then take his own life? You know, why, why did another one go into a kindergarten that he was completely removed from? You know, I mean, well, elementary school. I mean, all these, these things that we have, you can't make sense of them because they're coming from a place of nonsense. The, the, the brains of these individuals, the same way as when people find themselves at suicidal points, that goes against every cell in the human body which is desiring to live and thrive and reproduce and protect your offspring and you're kicking against that but there's obviously again these these elements that contribute to that childhood trauma sleep deprivation you know um medication that get them there and, and you see the same kind of areas with these these violence attacks as well yeah just the and nihilism right there's a lot of kids who just they, there's just no meaning or purpose in their life they don't have to struggle you know, it's it's weird. The anxiety levels have never been higher for the population I teach, but they they they've never had to struggle less. Like you know, like just evolutionarily, they want food, they got it. They want a soft bed, they got it. They they have all this stuff. It's almost like the mind needs you know something to do and needs some sort of purpose. And you think, well, you know, I I need to make an impact on the world maybe and and a negative impact is bigger than a than a positive one i don't know i don't know but it's it's scary and it's something that affects the the students that you know young people that i talk to like they think about that you know i mean this is it's it's become you know very commonplace these school shootings yeah i, I used to work on a, a summer camp in upstate new york for about six years every summer as an exchange program with with the uk and uh this particular camp was a very affluent Jewish camp. And I remember the very first year I went there and I was 20 then and we had an infirmary on the camp and it was the first like after dinner since the kids had arrived we get there like a week before and set out first and there was a line around the infirmary I'm like these kids just got here how is everyone sick already? And I went and spoke to the nurse who was a fellow Brit and she's like no it's it's for Ritalin. And I'm like and I've been in you know yeah. the the health space I'm like what is Ritalin? Yeah. Like, oh, it's for ADD. I'm like, okay, you're going to have to help me out here. What the hell is ADD? Oh, it's attention deficit disorder. And I'm, I'm, I'm still lost. What is that? Oh, it's, you know, <laughs> when kids are hyperactive. And, and, I'm, and it was literally, I'm not exaggerating, probably a third of the summer camp were lined up wrapped around this infirmary. And, and we didn't even have that in, in England. And now obviously you see it more and more and more. And of course, every disorder, there's a certain group and i've seen them i remember one guy specifically in my head now a kid who was was just off the freaking chain whether he needed medication whatever he he absolutely was a dynamo but i mean like you said they're kind of drugged up like zombies and these were very affluent kids but the key was some of them were there three six sometimes even nine weeks a lot of them went to boarding schools so even though they had that mother and father in place and traditionally, they would have kids older. Some mm. of them, not saying all of them, but some of them, it almost appeared like they were as parentless as the kid in the hood who never mm. knew his dad and his mother was wherever and he was being raised by his grandparents, you know? So seeing these polar opposites, there was almost the same trauma, but just from the different socioeconomic scale. 
Yeah, I, so I went from teaching in a really, really tough area of like East LA. Um, the, my last year there, I mean, it was, I don't know how many students were, were shot during that year, but it was, it was, became like a regular thing. It was just heartbreaking. And I left there and went to an affluent school west, in west side of Beverly Hills and, um, or west side of LA, I'm sorry, near Beverly Hills. And I felt like a sellout. I was like, these kids don't need me. They're going to be fine. But I, you know, I was getting married and wanted to have kids. And it, the stress of, of teaching in the hood was just getting to me. I took my job really seriously. And, um, and then I realized pretty soon into it that, oh, these kids have problems too. You know, I mean, I have taught, you know, kids who are child actors or, you know, sons and daughters of like literal like billionaires. And they don't know their parents. They're given stuff for their birthday that is, doesn't connect to them on a personal level at all. They're ignored. They're, I mean, it's, oh, it's like, oh, yeah. And then on top of that, they're still just regular teenagers. So they get a pimple. And, you know, that's that's a huge thing going on in their life, too. So, yeah, it's it's interesting how how I, I didn't, I kind of went into this thinking that like, I'm not going to be, you know, able to serve. And these kids are struggling too. You know, it's, it's different struggles, but it's real. I mean, the, this is, you're talking about like being at a, at a, a Jewish camp and um, have a lot of Jewish students and like the pressure that they feel, the societal pressure, the community pressure, the parental pressure, it's no joke. Like an A minus is like, they are getting reprimanded hard. So, I mean, they're on edge all the time. It's really that and it's heartbreaking in a very in a very similar way. I agree with you. Yeah. Well, I remember it was a performing arts camp. So we had some very talented kids. Um, some also were children of very well-known actors and uh, fashion designers. Um, and performing arts was that thing. But again, it was pressure even then. Like they had the rehearsals and recitals and all this stuff. And I ran the waterfront. So I was lucky to be the cool guy that had the speedboat and the jet skis. <laughs> but you would see these kids like tearing their hair out. Still, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure they enjoyed it, but the stress. And then they would come down the waterfront and you teach them how to water ski. And the cheesy grin that would be on this face, partly because of that experience. And I think, again, partly that one-on-one -on -one contact or, you know, with, with the, the people that were, were working with me down there. That just took him away from all that and be like, let's spend some time. Let's do something fun. It's not going to amount to any career even. It's just because it feels freaking awesome to get up on water skis. You cannot not smile on water skis. It's impossible. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. I read that joke. Like money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy, you know, water skis. A jet ski. I think it's Daniel Tosh. Jet ski. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, then, so speaking of that, that... um uh, financial diversity, if you like. One thing that we hear, um, and again, I'd love to hear your impersonal perspective, is you have some of these schools in these poorer areas. You already have the challenge of maybe less support at the home to get these kids to do the work that's assigned, all those things. What about budget, though? Is there a discrepancy between a more affluent area and a poorer area for a budget for the school specifically? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, because I think that that's typically the thought is let's fund our schools. So I've been at um, both. So I've been at a, a more, you know, urban school that is um, it's, you know, tight. Like they, they say you only get to make this many photocopies a week, you know, like that kind of stuff because of paper and and the, the textbooks are ripped up and things of that nature. 
Um, and you have to get creative. And it was actually good for me because that's like one of the first schools I taught at. And it was good for me because I had to get creative and I spent some money out of pocket and things like that. But then I went to another school that was actually in a worse neighborhood, but it was a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation School. So we had funding. We had smart boards and we had Bluetooth. Around. I mean, the, the school was unbelievable. It had tons of money. But the structure of that school was the bones of it were worse and it didn't – all of that stuff, the money was going into things. It was going into like like yeah, like tangible like technology. It wasn't going into to you know what I think would be probably better, which would be more you know trips for the kids and getting them out of their element and getting them you know experiences. It wasn't on that. It was on stuff. So there's a lot of schools – that take that have decent budgets and they put those budgets into a brand new auditorium or something like that. So the facility looks really nice, which matters. It does matter to have a school that doesn't have cracks in the windows. I think it does. But I think that if you have cracks in the windows and stuff like that, you can turn that into a pretty amazing learning space. And we know that because you you know, probably have a lot of friends or something who grew up in poor communities or poor households, but their parents were there. And even though they lived in a, you know, a studio apartment that turned into a castle with their imaginations. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that the space itself is where a lot of the money goes and that's not necessarily going to be what, what fixes it from my experience anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. I absolutely agree. I know that where my little boy goes, they, they do struggle. And, and I know there's, you know, one of his classes, there's only one set of, of textbooks and they all share those same ones. And every year, you know, we take bags and bags of supplies for them for each year. And then they'll periodically say, Hey, we need this. We need that. That's fine. Now I think, you know, as a community, we should provide an, an environment where they don't need to ask for that. But I can totally understand. We have this in the fire service. We have woefully understaffed fire departments with brand new engines. You know, and it's like, well, the engine isn't going to get people out of a building. So you bought a hundred, you know, whatever, hundreds of thousands of dollar vehicle, but then you've only left your budget enough to have two people on that. Well, they can't facilitate rescuing the child from the building, you know? So I couldn't agree more. There's an absolute apples for apples comparison with those two is if you just focus on the shiny objects and even, I mean, let's just turn to, to churches of whatever persuasion. We all know of those churches out there where they're getting these tithes and building these monstrosities, but then doing very little in their community. And there's the polar opposite of these people that are operating out of a, a trailer that are out there doing incredible things in their community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Well, then I want to shift uh, another topic. Um, we talk about, you know, the 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 health of our nation, you know, as far as that we're talking about, you know, protecting our kids in schools and, and other areas and our borders and terrorism. But then you sit in front of a theme park, because I'm, I'm here in Florida, and you look at the people that walk through the doors and the obesity crisis that we have in this country at the moment that takes, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives a year. It drives me personally crazy to see that we waste the opportunity to truly set our children up for success by teaching them how to cook, by serving good food in the schools. Um, and I know, again, a lot of that is is lobbying from certain you know organizations as well. But what is your view on on school food and using that opportunity to create a healthy adult down the road? Um, 
from my experience, it's, it's terrible. Um, so when I taught uh, at this at a, at a in a particularly bad neighborhood, every day I'd see a kid, or, you know, a bunch of kids. I mean, I'd see the the students. They'd stop the liquor store on the way to school, and they get a big monster, like a twenty ounce monster energy drink, and a bag of hot Cheetos, and that was their their breakfast. And it was like every day. Um, it's it's terrible. But like you said, like these are adults, so it, it's terrible at the home and then it comes to school and a lot of teachers are unhealthy overweight you know we're not doing the stuff physical stuff you guys are doing you know i i remember i was at a faculty meeting years and years ago and i was oh they had cookies i was like oh i'll have a cookie and i was like eating a cookie or, or two and one of my colleagues was like oh it's so it must be must be nice to be able to eat cookies and stay so thin i was like I ran six miles this morning. <laughs> like, <laughs> I get the same yeah. comments. <laughs> you know? um, so, but you know, the, that's what gets me to like in, so the, the food isn't good, but they don't even know. I mean, I've had health issues just like, like a year and a half ago, I had some health issues and, and I talked to a lot of doctors and the doctors admittingly said, you know, our nutrition education was like a week of, you know, all of our, you know, multiple years of a med school. I mean, I mean, for your wife, I mean, how much nutrition education is she getting? Yeah, and she won't, but I mean, probably barely nothing. And there's, there's a lot of nutrition that affects the eye. I mean, diabetes is a huge cause of uh, blindness. Yeah. So, so what I, I'm a curious guy and I, and maybe it's, even though I'm 37, I'm not super young. I, I, I listen to, you know, Joe Rogan's podcast. So I, you know, have Rhonda Patrick and Chris Kresher and I follow their stuff. And, and, you know, when it comes to relationships and sex and stuff, I'll like listen to Esther Perel. Like these are people that I bring these names up to my colleagues or other teachers and they're just, they have no idea. They have no idea about what a, you know, a ketogenic diet is or, you know, a slow carb diet or, you know, all of that stuff. Like there's information out there and it's not getting to the families. It's not getting to the teachers. It's not getting to the education, the colleges, colleges of education. So it's not getting in the classroom, but that's what I try to bring is the newest, best information, podcasting and things like that gives you access to these brilliant minds to go out and kind of set your, change the way you, you think about this stuff. And then I try to apply that. But to answer your question, it's it's terrible. I mean, I mean, this was something that um, uh, Michelle Obama started, right? Like the 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 idea of like healthy lifestyle. Like I forget what it was like something like fifteen or something like that, right? Um, I forget. But she, uh, but but she, it was it went from exercise and diet to just focusing on exercise. And school lunches are 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 like very classic you know, stuff like, you know, just like very, very classically what we thought, like food pyramid, basically, for lack of a better term, it was, it was food pyramid stuff is still what's being served. Yeah. But even then, when you look at what they're calling a vegetable, for example, the sauce on a pizza, you know, I mean, it, yeah. get, it gets right. ridiculous. Yep. And you're right. And the yeah. thing is, the the moving side, which I want to talk about in a second as well, is very important. But the nutrition side is 95% of you know, weight control and, and health and, and the fitness side is more ability, you know, and absolutely prime in the pump. But that's not you don't, you can't out train a shitty diet, as they say. And it's so true. And yeah. my, uh, my father in law, actually, the other day was like, well, you know, these, these, these parents said they should teach the kids how to eat at home. It's like, well, they're not. <laughs> so that's off the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So your other they're opportunity <laughs> is to do it at school. And then, you know, if they can actually because I did home economics, you know, and I was, you know, it was either that or I forget what the other one was, but I was terrible at woodwork. I got no artistic ability at all. So 
I, I thought, well, the other class is girls. So let's do home economics instead. But, you know, I, I'd been taught how to cook at home. I grew up on a farm. But it was such a good environment just to kind of connect with your food and see real ingredients and learn how to cook and remove that kind of facade of cooking. Now imagine the kids like, you know what? Can we buy these three things? I want to cook you something. Do you stop sowing that seed? You might, the 13-year-old kid might be the one that overturns the health in his or her family, you know? But if we don't do that in the schools as well, then you're just adding insult to injury and getting what, you know, just like with the drugs, we have an obesity epidemic in our children and in our adults. So when the hell are we going to say enough is enough? We need to do differently in our school kitchens as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is, you know, like fasting, like I talk about fasting, I intermittent fast and I uh, once a year or so I do like a longer fast and I talk about that. But like schools give out donuts just all the time. Go to go to like your local, you know, your 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 homeschool and go to the school store. It's all just candy. It's I mean, and and it's so crazy. I went off a of candy for or I went off a of sugar for a year, like two years ago, and it was really hard. But like I remember just I I was looking around like this is like drugs, like they're just selling drugs to kids, you know, and when you when you get off of it a little bit, then your your gut microbiome doesn't crave it as much. It takes some time. Then you don't crave the sugar as much. And then when you do have it, you go, whoa, that's not very good. You eat a bell pepper and it feels sweet. But the kids are just so they're just locked in that they're just they're used to this. And that that's what their taste buds are all aligned with and their guts all aligned with. And it's very hard to break. Yeah. It's very hard. Did you ever see that um, show Jamie Oliver did coming over here trying to change the way one particular school was cooking? No. Okay, so he's a chef, an English chef, really, really charismatic yeah. London guy. Um, and I believe, and i got to research this more, but I believe he actually succeeded in the English school system. And then he came over here, they followed him, and it was somewhere, I think it was in the Midwest, if I remember rightly. And he took the same budget because people were like, oh, we can't afford that. Well, we all know that's bullshit. You you get local produce. You can feed a lot of people for cheaper than the crap usually. But he took the same budget, taught these dinner ladies and men, um, you know, how to actually cook. So they made chicken nuggets, but they made them with chicken breast and breading, right. you know, and then they... they yeah, almond it. flour or something. Yeah, yeah, just, just exactly. Just turned it to a healthier version you know day one the kids were like what is this slob and then by like i think it was day three they were already starting to eat it you know and salads and vegetables and it was very successful but i believe they regress back after um to the other way and and that's just it you can't use budget as an as, as a as an excuse because i can tell you right now you can go to the local farmer's market and buy a whole lot of produce you can buy you know, canned beans and, and other things like that. You can go, there's one uh, store here in Ocala called Earth Fair. Some of their clean meat is cheaper than the processed meat in, in the store normally. So it, you just have to look outside the, the vendors that have always fed you your slop and then and then value. And in that budget, like, well, how much are you going to save on, you know, the, the, the medical costs? And, and are they going to get more attention in the classroom? You know, you're going to have more attendance in PE. And you're going to get this knock-on effect that's then hopefully going to support, you know, expanding your nutrition program. But if we're feeding them processed stuff and candy, which again is a relationship, an emotional relationship with this food, with empty calories, you're just setting these kids up for failure. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, you know, there's that's so cool. Making your own chicken nuggets, for example, like you're producing your food like that. You put forth effort. You don't want to just wolf it down. You want to savor it. Um, also like, you know, the, um, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So then, what about um, physical education? Because I know that in many schools is one of the first classes to to be thrown by the wayside. What's your philosophy on on the importance of that in the schools? Um, well, you know, I'm very physically active, and I try to run that and push and you know have kids, you know to promote them to start clubs. And I've, you know, worked out with kids before and after school and helped them teach them proper ways to lift and things like that. But again, there's a, there's a theme here. And the theme is essentially, you know, like with, when it comes to, uh, you know, the, your diet and it's like, Oh, it's a really hard to make my food or to, you know, go to the grocery store and just get processed food, or it's really hard to work out. And I can just, you know, complain about, you know, about this or, or say that I, I'm not feeling mentally there or whatever it is. I'm even with like, you know, fat shaming is what I was going to say. And then I didn't go down by will like, you know, to say like, well, we, let's have a better diet because you're getting overweight is even something that we're not, we're being kind of urged not to do. And look, I'm not trying to fat shame anyone. Of course, I care about these students a lot, a lot, so much so that I'm not going to let them like blindly become unhealthy. If they want to do that as a choice, that's on them. But if not having the option because we're scared about the way that they might take it, I think that that's also with physical education. If a kid, you know, is, I remember I was a pretty weak kid growing up and, and like doing the physical standard testing and stuff like that, where like I couldn't do a single pull up and I could probably barely even run a mile. I'd get sick or something. I, uh, it was embarrassing. It was hard, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And it's not something that we should avoid as a society is, you know, these difficulties, we should, we should not, we should support them during these difficulties. But I think it's really important to guide them through, you know, conquering these fears and difficulties, not avoiding them. And I think that physical education is going away and parents are putting pressure. Oh, my little Sally, she can't do it because she has anxiety or, you know, whatever it is. Like that's we're missing the real teachable uh, opportunities here by by teaching them, educating them on this and supporting them, because if they're going through something really difficult, let's that that's a, where we step up as teachers and and help them. You know, we do this from a very kind and empathetic place. But say like, you know, you're you're not healthy right now, you know, or, or, you know, let's let's work on this. Oh, you're a bad runner. I'm bad at, you know, whatever this is. And and here's how I got better. And you walk them through that process. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. It's funny when there is that whole fat shaming thing. But I want to know where the uh, skinny shaming advocates were when I was a kid, because I looked like Captain America before he had the operation. <laughs> <laughs> and you said about Me pull too, up. Man. I remember at, when I was a young man, I'm talking in college, I think I was 20 i could do a single pull-up one pull-up that was it so you know and, and you said with the whole cookie comment like there's a lot of people that are you know having to go the other way that are ext- extremely small especially if they're male where it's the same as being an overweight female really in, in as far as ridicule but the reality is whichever journey you're going is where the lessons are is where the you know it's what builds you up is, is going down that but to say oh you know I, i'm i'm a big beautiful woman like you are today but like his his i'm gonna you know throw something at you if you could be not skinny not a barbie doll but whatever size you would be where everything was working well that you could run you could jump you could squat you could play with your kids you could you know do a an obstacle course whatever you could play your favorite sport you could swim would you trade in the body you have now that's carrying an extra 100 150 pounds for the same you just 
in 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 optimal in optimal shape where you could actually do the things you want to do would you trade it in you know damn well every single person on planet earth would say yes and the same way as a skinny guy if you could trade it in for five years from now where you have the strength to do exactly the same things i just said would you and the answer is yes so you just the, the human body is an incredible gift and it just breaks my heart when I've seen through miseducation, through unaddressed mental issues, whatever it is, that people find themselves horrendously overweight. Because I can tell you as a paramedic and all my peers out there, there's nothing glamorous about you dying at 49 years old with a tube down your throat, lying on the side of your car because you had a heart attack and we had to drag you out. We're pounding on your chest and then we throw a sheet over you because you died. There's nothing big and beautiful about that. But what's amazing is if you use your body the way you wanted it to, you also died at 49. For whatever reason, you got hit by a train, but you did everything you wanted to do up to that point. And that's what breaks my heart is that we're destroying our men and women the way that we're educating them and then making it okay, like you said, to be obese. Oh, you can't walk. Oh, here's an electric wheelchair. You can scoot around Walmart. And I don't mean this to be patronizing or rude or mean but what it should be is our entire health and education system should be geared towards here's where you are today and i'm so sorry that you got to that point here's all the tools to get you back to where you want to be to where you truly in your heart heart want to be so we have a nation of men and women that are out there thriving and doing amazing things and then when we die we die but it wasn't because of our ill health and from my experience with teenagers, I spent you know years and years with teenagers, so a lot of time with them. They they are BS detectors. They know that that's nonsense. They do. They know that hey, you know what? You look great. They know they don't look great. They know it. And when you when so you don't don't lie to your students. OK, because because the truth is better and the truth is going to win, too. So what we have to do is, again, like I said about being a translator, is you have to really connect with them. If you care, then you help them. And that's our job is to do it, like I said, through empathy and kindness and and guide them. You don't shame people. We know that doesn't work the same way it doesn't work for you know drug addicts. So what what do we do? You know, you walk them through, you try and get to the core of you, get them some sort of, you know, help and assistance and all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, there's a little bit of a, of a tangent, but it still lines up like there are a lot of people who are in need of personal connection. That's another Yohan Hari book, I think, um, uh, Lost Connections is. But, you know, so and and then while this, the same time, Andrew Yang and his whole crew running for, for um, president is talking about the autonomous uh, driving and all these jobs that are going to go away to robots. So what jobs can't a robot do? Well, you know, help people make those personal connections, right? So we, there, there's a shift that needs to happen in society because maybe an autonomous truck is better than a human driven truck, but there's no way, at least not yet, than an autonomous, you know, therapist or an autonomous, you know, mental health provider or so, mental health provider or something like that is going to be better. So, you know, we we need to structure ourselves in a little bit better way to help these people, really help them to make the better decisions. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's interesting watching. I've talked about this a few times now when I, mean, I didn't grow up in America, but, you know, our generation um, when we were young, you know, it, it was the retail. Everyone was going to the malls and everyone was, you know, you, you'd be dragged there by your other half and have to sit there for hours while they looked at dresses. <laughs> you know, I love Amazon and the online community because now 
all that can be done. So what you're seeing, certainly in my town here, is what was a, a, a store with things hanging or sitting on shelves. And people don't talk when they're shopping. That's not a communal space. And now becoming bakeries, barbershops, restaurants, breweries, you know, and you know, some of those alcohol, that may not be the best thing. But regardless, spaces where human beings are coming in. Even my CrossFit gym is in the heart of downtown Ocala here. That is an incredible human, um, communal space and a tribal space and a place where we have elite athletes through to people that are, you know, on their journey from being morbidly obese back to, to where they want to be. And you're absolutely right is those are the human spaces where they're not going to replace us with, with robots. We've actually no. tried your robot made bread and it's shit. So we want to get a, a real person to make it again. You know what I mean? So I agree 100%. Yeah, I mean, I say to all the time, and I post it on my social media, the day that I can be replaced by Google is the day that I should. So, you know, Mr. Rouge, who was the you know 12th president? I don't know. You don't know? Nah, man, I can find out in 10 seconds though. Like That's not what I'm here for. You know, I'm here to make these connections, make these translations to, you know, help support you when you're really fight when you're fighting with your parents. Like try to Google that one. You know, like that's the way I kind of frame it. Yeah, no, I love that. Absolutely love that. Well, I want to have one more area before we do some wrap up questions. But this has kind of been a just an interesting thing for me because I became um, a dad. My little boy's 12 now. I've got a stepson, Ethan, but he's uh, 18. So I kind of kind of missed that a little bit with him. But the sex ed thing. So. I, as Ty started going through, you know, we, we had conversations and obviously kind of age appropriate depending on, on, on how old he was, but he's 12 now, you know, it's that hormone storm going on. Um, and so about a year ago now, I'm like, all right, I need to find some real nuts and bolts sex ed. Here's actually what happens anatomically, you know, let's prepare you. Cause I remember my dad was uh, a vet, so I dealt with animals shagging the whole time. <laughs> and, yeah. and, but yeah, I was told, I swear to God, I was told, you pray to God and he puts a baby in your tummy and that's it. And my parents weren't even very religious, so I don't know where the hell they came up with that. But um, So then I remember sitting in a sex ed class and my jaw dropped. And I was like, oh, so it's just the same as animals? I wish they freaking told me that in the first place. But um, so I'm kind of, you know, long, long preface to this, but what blew me away speaking of google is you have two avenues online at least to teach your child about sex you have the patronizing television presenter putting a condom on a banana and then you have porn and it's mind-blowing to me you could i found a book there's a good book but that's a book this is a, you know this is 2019 but there is no middle ground and this is I made this observation, you know, before about the stakes. You can watch a movie on cable TV where Rambo murders 20,000 Viet Cong, but then there might be a nipple on one woman that walks by and so they blur it out, you know? So that that mentality and that the way that we look at sex is crazy, but that is a long way of me saying, what in in your time, what have been the, the best ways for addressing sex ed in the schools and for everyone listening because clearly i haven't found it what do you think are some resources for people to address that issue because it seems to be very um stifled here in the u.s um yeah no th this is an important thing and like you know i was i was i grew up in a household where i could watch i watched terminator and stuff like that when i was five years old but as soon as there was like yeah a breast in the background i was like cover your eyes 
So like, yeah, that sends a message right away. And, you know, um, I'm trying to raise my kids. I have a two and a five year old little boys. And, you know, we talk pretty early about, you know, well, that's your penis. And then, you know, like we don't like go into like the, the, the um, act necessarily. But like we're going we're gonna to talk about it open. I never got a sex talk, like never got one from like my parents. I got one in school. Um, but it just wasn't covered. I think my dad was like, hey, are they talking about sex ed in school? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, OK, cool. And then just like, you know, <laughs> it's awkward, you know. Um, but uh, it is important. I, I remember Esther Perel talking, saying, you know, the way sex ed typically goes, it, they teach it like it's plumbing. And it's, you know, and it's not. And that's and that's probably the one thing that doesn't need to be taught. Like you said, animals know it. That's instinctual, you know, but that's what porn gets us to is they're not getting it. It's an awkward conversation for teachers and parents to have. So, again, they avoid what's hard. You know, it's like the theme over and over and over again. Um, so when it comes to uh, how to how to teach it, what I typically do, you might be similar because you're a podcast guy as well. Like I find experts and then they become my filters somewhat. So it might be through a Tim Ferriss show or, or a Joe Rogan show or something like that. And then, for, like I said, for, for nutrition, it might be Rhonda Patrick or, or Chris Kresher or someone like that. And then for, you know, psychology, it might be Jordan Peterson or for bi biology, it might be Brett Weinstein or something. And um, I so I look for those those people. So the social psychologists or like the quote unquote sex experts that have kind of already gone through my filter system of people of intellectuals and people that I that I think are on um, the right path. Um, so I don't know of um, of like programs that have it, but I've been at enough schools and I've seen good ones and bad ones. And typically the good ones are open to questions and they address the problems re realistically. Like what is the real danger here? And and not just, you know, abstinence or if you have sex, you're going to get AIDS and die like <laughs> from mean girls. Like it's not that it's it's much more like really here's what it is, you know, and saying things like a kid says, like, you know, does sex feel better without a condom? Like, you know what I mean? Like like that's a that's that there's a complicated nature to that to, to answering a question like that. You know, like because you, you can get into it. I love getting into that, like feel better physically. Perhaps it's pretty good no matter what. Also, it doesn't feel good to get a girl pregnant or get a disease that you don't want. So you have to factor that in. Like you give them a lot of the nuance and I'm just a nuanced guy. So I don't have um, a, a specific program that I've seen. But I think having honest conversations, just honest conversations is really the the gold of, of what we do as educators. And we don't know everything, but adults know is it good to be promiscuous when you're young? You know, would you want your your daughter or, or mother to be promiscuous? Like, no. OK, so maybe it's not good. You know, like like we can just dive into this a little bit. We just need to think about it, you know, and, and go about it with intention. Yeah. And it's an ongoing thing, too. You know, I mean, I think that's the problem is you can't fix it with a one day course. You know, it needs to be something. And thank God I managed to create this with my little boy because he's come to me since with questions and um, being very honest. You know, he's not he doesn't have shame around what he's asking about. But, yeah, it, it's, you know, as as you do the first conversation, that's got to then sink in. Then they're going to go and maybe, you know, be around a girl and be like, hey, I was around so and so and this happened. Like, what you know, what, what do you think about that? You know, so. I think that's from a parent's side, that's a big thing for me that I found has worked. And then I bought the book, you know, it talks about, you know, the the, the organs and, and feelings and, you know, the same sex and all that stuff. So not only can you learn about you, you can start educating on what other people do. 
rather than be, you know, guffawing or saying it's a sin or whatever other, you know, ridiculous rhetoric is out there. But um, yeah, I mean, that's the, the fact that you weren't able to even say, oh, there's this program and this program, and this program, again, underlines the fact that that's another area, you know, we're, we're throwing our arms up in the air like, oh, why is there so much violence in society? It's like, well, you do show it on TV and allow all these video games where you run around shooting hookers and, and murdering cops. Maybe that's somewhere that we could look at and maybe take that passion for that and maybe destigmatize some of the sexual stuff and, you know, find more of a balance. Yeah. And I think teach intimacy more than even sex education. I think it's intimacy and how to be intimate and how what does that mean to have a connection? And and maybe it's hard to do a, a real program because it is so individualized. You know, and part of, of, of the job that we have as teachers is to get to know your students, know them, like actually know them as individual human beings, because it's it might not be something that's a blanket. The same advice you would give to one kid about asking a girl out would be very different than another kid. Yeah. Yeah. And intimacy is a huge thing, because that's the problem that I found. My uh, my little boy was shown porn when he was about 10 by his then 13 year old kind of pseudo stepbrother in the other household. Um and, you know, so now you're in an environment where there is none. And if you're fortunate, I had to talk to him about the, the porn world and everything because it was too late. He'd already seen it. You have some, you know, things that you might see on there that probably replicate exactly what healthy, normal sex is. But then there's the other 90% where it gets super dark. And yeah. there's no intimacy. In fact, it's the opposite. It becomes hate. It becomes violent. It becomes oppressive. So, you know, if you're not talking about that... And, and you're not having any conversations with your children, which one of those are they going to latch on and go, well, this is normal? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, on that, I'm going to go to some tra- wrap-up questions so I can let you get on with your day. Um, oh, thank you. The first one that I love to ask, and it sounds like you probably got a lot, is there a book or books that you love to recommend to people? It can be what we've discussed today or something completely different. Oh, man. Um, yeah, a lot. But OK, here, here's one I read um, like a couple of weeks ago is How to Have Impossible Conversations by Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay. Um, it's it's excellent. And it, it is what it is. It's how to talk to people who are different ideologically than yourself. And it's a lot of, you know, how to you know keep the conversation productive. And, and it's very practical. I think that the subtitle is A Practical Guide. Um, but I, I love that book and that's, it's something I just read recently. Excellent. All right. So the same question, movie. Um, my favorite movie of all time, this is probably cliche for someone my age and stuff from, from America, but, uh, is Goodwill hunting. And the reason I love that movie and I've watched it a lot is because it is all about relationships. So there's the romantic relationships, the best friend relationship, there's the mentor relationship. There's a real teaching element in that. Um, of the the therapist that he forms a relationship with, and and it, it it connected with me. I really love that movie, as corny as it is in some parts. I really um, dig that movie, and I think that it's. I've learned a lot from it. I love it. Brilliant. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, what about documentary? Oh man, um, oh, there's so many good documentaries. Uh, let me think of. Uh, let's say Cocaine Cowboys. <laughs> Did you ever see that? I haven't seen I that one. No. Okay, so um, that one is 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 really fascinating. It has to do with the drug war and the power that comes in the drug and the the drug war and building up Miami. I love. I'm gonna give you. I'm just gonna throw out a bunch. I love uh, Grizzly Man. 
that one, Timothy Treadwell going to live with the bears. And like, that's about like loneliness and, and things of that nature. I love King of, uh, King of Kong, the fistful of quarters. That's the one about the guy who uh, wants to get the world record in Donkey Kong, and he kind of like makes that the central focus of his life. There's, I, I love documentaries. <laughs> I, I watch a lot of them I, anytime I can. Uh, I learn so much from them. I, I dig them. Icarus was fascinating about the the um, the drugs and in sports and oh there's just there's a bunch <laughs> excellent yeah you sound like you as passionate as i am i think documentaries yeah. are amazing as long as you take them all with a grain of salt if they're leaning one way yeah which they do right and you you gotta you, you get bamboozled sometimes yeah all right so then what about is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and civilians of the world um i I love, and I only had a short online meeting with him once, but I love um, Brett Weinstein. Um, the reason is because he is, I think, the most reasonable person I've ever heard talk. And he has everything through an evolutionary lens. So I think he would be very interesting to talk about what is it, you know, biologically, uh, evolutionarily, that makes certain people want to protect the tribe. Certain people want to be the protectors. You know, uh, I think he would be able to, to lay that out really well. I think that'd be interesting. Brilliant. Yeah, that would. Absolutely. All right. So then the last question before we talk about your podcast and where we can find you, um, what do you do to decompress? Um, what, I do, what I do to decompress is uh, jujitsu. So jujitsu and some martial arts stuff. I Again, it just fits the theme of me being a teacher. Is I've never been in the MMA cage myself. I've competed a lot in jiu-jitsu, but never actually fought, never had a boxing match or a Thai boxing match or anything. But I have a lot of friends and um, uh, people I train with who are fighters and I go in and help them with their camps. So that I, I love I love being a part of that, that element of being a teacher and just get kind of being a body to get beat up a little bit. Um, that's how I, I decompress uh, that or spend time with my kids. They're a really fun age. Um, I can uh, relate completely. I, I used to train in... Um, uh, Colin Oyama's gym down in um, Irvine and it was the same oh, thing yeah. I was just a good yeah. body double for whoever they right. were training at I was not even remotely close to the ability of the people that they were going to fight in the UFC but I could move around and and you know they could punch me like a really skinny moving punching bag <laughs> <laughs> yeah like among school teachers I'm fairly tough among cage fighters I am yeah not, exactly I'm at the bottom yeah <laughs> exactly that's the problem if you always train around these tough people you always feel like a puss and then you're like well I hope one day when someone actually tries to attack me that I'm you know <laughs> I've got to yeah. that point where I'm attacked by you know a regular person not a not a UFC champ or someone <laughs> yeah. otherwise I'm screwed like, oh, yeah it's not so bad <laughs> All yeah. right, so then let's talk about Cylinder Radio. Um, yeah. What made you start that? And then we'll transition to where people can find it. Okay, so uh, I started it um, in January of last year. So it's still, you know, it's only been around for whatever, you know, whatever this is, you know, 11 months. Um, but, uh, but it's essentially, it's a little on the nose, but essentially trying to get all perspectives. I don't like the lack of civil discourse um, the, the, the lack, the polarization in society and stuff like that. And it was really driving me nuts. And I've had experiences in my life that, that put me on shaky ground, as I said before, where I, I was certain that this was right and that was wrong. And then something came up and I go, oh my gosh, that's, it could be the opposite. And it's really jarring. And I, you know, I learned a lot about the psychology of that and everything. And I, and I, I thought, well, that, that seems to be the way a lot of things work. So the idea of cylinder radio is, um, 
if you if you're standing on one side of a cylinder, it looks like a rectangle. If you're standing on the other side, it looks like a circle. But the truth is that it's it's kind of three dimensions, and there's a lot of nuance, and it's a lot more complex than you might think if you never change your perspective. So, the the idea is I have on um, a guest who is an expert, a quote unquote expert on an area. And then I try to flush out all of the different perspectives on it. So for a controversial issue like abortion, I had on an abortion doctor and then I had on someone who was a pro-life feminist, you know, which is, I try and find people who are like weird kind of combinations. I had on a, a black kid from, from Atlanta who's like 13 years old, who's a diehard Trump supporter. You know, it's like these things that people go, wait a second, what? What's going on? You know, and and uh, and I've covered a bunch of different topics. I've had on police. I've had on a police officer who was a woman from uh, Houston, Texas, and uh, and she, you know, was like a small. She's like, you know, five foot two, 130 pounds as a as a female officer. So I talk about officers, but also like, what are the advantages and disadvantages of you know your, your physicality? And it, it's just really, I, I'm a c- curious person. So for me, it just to have have people on who are experts, I just keep asking questions, asking questions, and I have a blast. I have a blast with it. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing. I talk about this too. And it's the most selfish project out there because I get to yeah, ask these right. amazing people. The questions that I want to ask, and I'll put it out there. And obviously, my goal is that they were questions that most other people would want asked as well. But yeah, I mean, you know, you're you're a perpetual student. And it's amazing. Yeah, thanks, man. So yeah, it's it's on like Apple Podcasts. Um, I I use social media. Uh, generally, I use Instagram because it is the the platform used by both teachers and young people. Like you know, high school, early college is like the real area that I'm looking at age wise and then educators. So teachers might use Twitter, but teenagers don't and teenagers use Snapchat, but not a lot of teachers do. So Instagram kind of has both. And I do little like just short one minute lessons on there and just share my thoughts and kind of try and spark thought and stuff. And that's just uh, Will Roosh, my name, W-I-L-L-R-E-U-S-C-H. Um, Instagram. I, I have a Facebook and a Twitter, but I don't go on those as much. No, I, I I think I've met one guest yet who's like, oh, Twitter's my favorite platform. It's so effective. I have huh. great conversations. No, <laughs> they're all like, I can't stand Twitter. <laughs> so yeah. I know of a couple yeah. people, you know, obviously that are well known, but yeah, it doesn't work for me either. Um, so then just talking about it quickly. So you, you had the podcast out there for a year now. What has been the reception for from your students and then from fellow educators? So it's been, it's been really positive. So I, I try to keep the world separate. I don't talk about the school that I'm at and I don't like promote it at my school or anything like that. Uh, I don't want to you know be kind of guided into a specific bias kind of by the definition of what the show is. Uh, but it's, it's been great. I mean, I've had, you know, people reach out to me that, that said that it's helped, um, for them to have a better understanding. I've had people reach out to say that, you know, I wish you would have this kind of person on because I would love to know the other side and stuff like that. It's still growing though. And you and I've talked about that off the air. Like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a process, you know, with a full-time job and a family and all that kind of stuff to put the time aside to do this, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like a slow burn, you know, it's like, it's taken a while to, to grow, you know, as far as downloads and trying to get it out there. So that's why another reason why James, I really appreciate you bringing me on here because you've built up this, this incredible audience and this, this thing over a lot of hours. And so to share kind of my perspective and, and education and maybe get some people to see what I'm doing so we can spread some of these ideas just more and more. Uh, I really appreciate it. Well, no, I appreciate what a, what you're doing with the podcast and then be coming on because that's my whole thing is trying to, you know, you talk about the echo chamber too, with your project getting outside that my echo chamber is the fire service and it's an amazing echo chamber to be in, but 
it's a tiny slice of of reality of the world so i love you know reaching out to people like you who are not only doing the job but kind of like me trying to shake the tree a little bit and be like hey you know doing it as we've always done may not be the best way there's got to be other ways that we can improve this yeah yeah for sure brilliant all right well thank you so much yeah thank you man this was i really enjoyed this thank you 